got Argentina's just beginning in Boca Morta, and that's the, the thickest shale we've ever seen. They're they're just drilling straight, you know, yeah. and, and they're getting, you know, shale production. We're used to very thin shales where we have to, you know, go horizontal through them. Um, they've, they've just got this bizarre shale. I mean, even though they all claimed Poland doesn't have a good shale, the whole country of Poland is shale underneath it. There's a tiny corner without shale. And uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. All of the Eagleford doesn't like, someone didn't just cut the bottom of the Eagleford off and say, okay, there, there it's over, it's not America anymore. Mexico's got all the rest, the tail end of that, running into Mexico that's undeveloped. It, it doesn't end and we haven't finished doing what we can do. Our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern our business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. Welcome everyone to Mission Zero podcast where we discuss key strategies, ideas and technologies to help achieve the goal of zero injuries and zero carbon footprint. Uh, we are recording live in the Fletcher Azul uh, studio here. David Reed is my guest today. He is the Chief Marketing and Technology Officer for NOV. Welcome, David. Thank you. Uh, just start out, uh, you know, we, we're, we're talking today more about the E and uh, ESG of yeah. uh, this podcast. We haven't yet uh, reached that subject yet, so I'm very happy to have you here to kind of discuss that, see where the future of oil and gas is when it relates to that. But in uh, beginning, can you just give us a little bit about you, your background, and what got you to where you are today? Sure. Starting... Like at birth or? <laughs> <laughs> Skip a few years. <laughs> Skip a few years, yeah. born at an early age. Um, yeah, so I uh, grew up in Scotland and uh, was, I was actually studied architecture originally and worked in California first. Did, a, did an apprenticeship to start in Scotland and then uh, met a California woman. And so in our dating years, I worked over there and then came back, finished college uh, did architecture, moved to LA, did some architecture there, came back to Aberdeen, Scotland, which I was from, did some architecture there and then got fired, um, which <laughs> was interesting. Happens. Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was a big firing for me. It was yeah. a, I, it was a design based thing and, and I just thought maybe I'm not good at this. Maybe this isn't what I should do, which, you know, it, it probably was a harsh uh, assessment of the situation, but, but friends in oil and gas, which I didn't want to be in had said, Hey, come and do this. It's really easy. And there's great money. And I was like, Oh, easy and great money. That sounds good. And I was making more immediately than I would have in architecture. So, um, my greedy self chose to stay. I worked in, uh, for a company called Varco who were a Californian company and, um, really got drawn into their culture. They were, they were better than anything I'd ever seen. And I understood Californian culture had worked there. And so they were in oil and gas, but they, their thought about people and why they do what they do um, was way ahead of the rest of the industry. And so um, I Even drew, in Scotland? Even in Scotland. In wow. fact, they hired me. I'd met this guy socially, and I had studied London and why it got built by American companies. And I did this whole culture piece on how people are developed and why 
business improves with an American mindset than it does with a British mindset. And um, it was kind of new stuff. And so I was telling someone at a party, this is what I did in college. And here's an American working with Scottish people. And he's like, I think I'd like to hire you. And they put me in a workshop and I'm like, what the heck? What do I know? You know? And so I was in this dirty old workshop and everyone seemed miserable. And, and I started to change the work environment. As soon as I worked out, that's how the company was. Like I was right in step with the leadership. Um, it really went well for me. And so they, um, I had this more of a U.S. view of like, I'm just going to do what I think is right. And I got on a drilling rig. We were making large automated robots at the time. And I was, uh, it was kind of new idea. And we were fitting a rig for it. And I just looked at it and went, this is the wrong machine. And so I designed a new machine, found out someone to make it. It was in Norway and um, got a price, bid it. And then there was a competition of price going on. And so it was going down the final. It's getting to where I'm not comfortable with the margin. I called my boss in Scotland, this the American guy, and said, this is where I'm at. He's like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to design new machines or you just fit the machines from California. You're not meant to look at manufacturing or... I'm like, well, that's the only way we're going to win this thing. And those machines are wrong. And he goes, all right, there was management in town. Go see the management. So I went to see the management and they said, oh, who are you? You know, and they, they pretty much moved me within a week to California. And so I moved into the design of drilling rigs because these new pipe handling systems were, were not known yet. So from knowing very little, I suddenly became this rig architect, fundamentally started designing uh, with a team. I didn't. I was never actually an engineer in all of this. I just worked with good engineers, but, but I had a lot of ideas of how things should be. So I was quite conversant and I went, went, started obsessing and getting on every drilling rig I could in the world and I kind of stayed there. So 30 years, um, with then we became NOV in time, uh, but always had that core culture, uh, of just focusing on human beings and how they interact and work. And uh, that kind of stayed with me the whole time. Yeah, being with a company that cares about people changes everything. Yeah, it makes you want to stay. It makes you want to. I guess it just makes everything better. It just well, makes you. They, you know, they 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 were unique, and that culture we we got bought a couple of times, and and so other cultures came in. But I, I've I've still stood by. This is who we are. So sometimes it became more aspirational, like the whole company wasn't on the same page. Mm-hmm. I mean, we acquire companies like obsessively. I think we do one a month on average. <laughs> and uh and and it's in our culture Is it really one a month yeah wow yeah usually by the end of the year you're like oh that was 10 then the next year well that was 14 and you're like it's roughly you know probably this last run is the slowest we've been in acquisitions because you got this mix of people valuing themselves high and you know trying to get something together now we're in the people just throwing themselves to them, please save my company uh, but we're pretty good at making sure it's a fit and we can grow the company so it's not like we're doing it mindlessly um, we do it to grow companies. What is your, uh, in your current role, what is your primary what, responsibility? What, yeah, what are you trying to do? Well, I was, um, probably most of my career, I was always trying to look ahead uh, on what's next, uh, usually longer than most people are looking. So in the 5, 10, 15 year, kind of thinking it through and, and then trying to create a business case to technology proof out to, to matching with customers who can buy. Uh, and to to push out the new, and then to culturally get people to buy into what's new, and so um, there's just a lot. You imagine all those companies in different applications. I, I'm pretty ADD, so that helps. So I mean, I get bored easily with things, so I can really get into a lot of subjects 
Um, and so mostly what I do now is make sure the things that are needed for the future are happening in the company. Um, or at least in the process. Or in the process. I mean, sometimes it takes 15, 20 years for a technology. So um, a lot of what is new right now is 20 years old for me. You know? Well, that was a question that I was going to get to because you know, one of the primary things you know, I wanted to discuss today was Ideal Frack. You're, 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 you've launched your new electric fracking yeah, yeah. Uh, fleet. We want to learn a lot about that and, yeah. and the advantages of that. My listeners probably aren't 100% oil and gas. Yeah. Um, they've heard fracking. Uh, if they've got their information from the news, it's probably mostly negative. It's all negative, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and although there's a lot of positives, but could you just um, give a brief, like a very high-level high, high level message about what fracking what it is, is as it's been? Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, fracking in general, what makes people nervous is that you're, you're literally applying pressure to rock in the ground to get it to break. And usually we're doing that because it's got trapped hydrocarbons. It's something people don't understand in oil and gas is it's not giant pools of hydrocarbons that we're suddenly putting a straw in and drinking out, which is what everyone thinks. You've got these large caverns somewhere. Um, they're actual actual geological structures, and so they're they're not gaps in the rock. They're they're just very small spaces within rocks where where you can you can actually flow through the rock. And so um, most of it, most of the oil and gas we've got comes out of these these thin layers uh, of uh, um, of what we would call the kitchen, where there's a lot of heat, and over time, uh, geological time, it, it it will burp out these these uh, gas and and oil you know, um, reserves and they'll get trapped. And we were, we've been for years taking those traps and, and taking out the oil and gas from them. Uh, we call them reservoirs. And so if you look at what we've been doing in fracking is we developed technology when we went offshore. If you look at land rigs, you would drill into that with hundreds of rigs, just keep moving the rig and drill into that structure. When we started going offshore, it was very expensive. So we had to learn how to put one large structure and drill uh, across and so it taught us how to actually turn uh, the bit uh, the uh, the front of the the drilling process and start turning corners. Once we'd learned how to go horizontal, which these are some very expensive systems that are computing and communicating back to the surface. Uh, once we learned how to navigate our way through that inner space kind of environment, um, we worked out that we could go into these um, these layers of shale which were terrible for us for years. When you go into them, they're um, not very, uh, trying to find the non-technical language, um, they're, they're, they're porous, so they're, they have very tiny uh, micro uh, spaces in them which have hydrocarbons, um, but if you applied any kind of pressure to them, they wouldn't flow, so there's, they're not able to flow through the rock, which is called permeability. Um, so they're not permeable, but they're holding a lot of resource, right? Um, so... And they're quite thin and they're all horizontal. So when we learned how to go horizontal, we could actually start steering into these beds uh, and break up all those structures and we could get access to those hydrocarbons. What that means is it gave us years and years and years on, on oil and gas. You know, we're into hundreds of years ahead that we can actually supply for ourselves because we've just been getting what kind of technically spilled out of those environments. Yeah, I don't. When I first um, started, you know, speaking to people and getting out there in the field and seeing this technology at work, I think the average person doesn't have a clue. No. I mean, it is really an incredible How amount deep of innovation. We are, and the technology definitely. I mean, you, we, we, and this is back to the PR side of what we do, which there is none. And so everyone gets to make up their own story. And so they show the worst cases of people using old style rigs. I mean, when I say robots, and I'm talking 30 years ago, 
no one has a perception that we've been using robots on rigs, but but people have stopped touching drill pipes, certainly offshore, uh, for decades now. It's just normal to have these giant machines handle. So the technology is not fully understood because it's never really shown. Do you, what do you think that is? You think oil companies just made the cognizant decision that if they're going to stay hate quiet? Us, uh, they, I, I have my theories. Out of sight, this, out of is, this is not a scientific <laughs> uh, analysis, but I would say our industry is all engineers. It's all engineers. It's like if you're if you see someone running a company, chances are they were. And our, my my boss, the CEO, was a geologist. You know, I mean, he, he and so it's just very common. And 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 it has its its pros and its cons. Um. So that one of the cons is most engineers think if you don't understand something, what are you stupid? I mean, that's their general position. It's obvious because they're used to really smart thinking. And if you're not able to ascertain, so when people say oh, no, there's hydrocarbons in my water. They go, ha that's ridiculous. Think about it. We, we, we make a steel structure. We then cement that structure. And inside it, we put another steel structure and cement that. And inside of that, we put another steel structure. And then we cement that and we put another steel structure. You're imagining that something on that inner steel structure is getting out. Yeah. That's so ridiculous. Now, was it cemented well? Are there other things that are in the mix that could have made that happen? Are there fractures in the earth where that, that could happen? Sure. Yeah. But for the most part, for most of them, we've been fracking since the 30s. So it's not like some, some new thing that we're working out. Yeah, that was interesting to learn too. That frack, it was, it's not that new. Not new. No, it's just... and, and the reason was we started fracking a lot. Um, and that, that made people nervous. And we are going through water tables, but we're going you know, way beyond that. Usually you're sitting with coal up on the surface and below that coal is a great filtering device um, mm -hmm. and it will hold a lot of hydrocarbon and it will clean it. And underneath that is, is uh, usually water and then we use that water, right? So those are aquifers, but we go way beyond that uh, environment. But you need to know if you're going to be near it, kind of steer around it and make sure you seal everything that you're doing. So yeah, yeah, things, things can happen. I wouldn't say that, that it's... Um, it's not all risk-free. Uh, even when people worry about earthquakes, yeah, there's some seismicity similar to a large truck driving through, you know, so when you measure it, you're looking at, yeah, there's, there is some, and large trucks can also, you know, cause seismic uh, impact. And so it's really understanding the, the truth in the subject. And when you politicize it, you get two extremes that don't tell truth. So I've, I've, I've been in situations in the fracking world where people wanted me to speak publicly because I can make it understandable. Um, but I'm not going to say that we didn't, there are things we didn't do in oil and gas that were wrong, you know? Well, I think that that probably would hurt credibility, right? You, yeah. You, you're, if you're honest about things and tell them how they are. But I think people, you know, some of the cons, they're looking, you know, you're right. They heard the falsehoods of the, the oil and the water and right. catching fire and things yeah. like that. But some legitimate concerns were the seismic activity, sure. uh, which I don't think... There's there's some structures where it is more likely. So there, and we'll be measuring and checking those out because it's interesting that the idea that um, there's no risk in any of these things. I mean, as what's what's misunderstood about the industry is we're wildly environmental, and and uh, they're geologists. They're they they're people who love the earth. I mean, they have a, a direct connection, and and we travel the world. And there's a, there's this. Now, there have been people in oil and gas who have done bad things over years, but I think the time I've been in it, never met someone with malintent, just consistently um, not willing to compromise environment. 
And so when you get something go wrong and there's some disaster, in our industry, it doesn't happen again, right? You get these big things and, and people soul search and they go deep into how did it happen? How do we make sure it doesn't happen? They never show that to the world. Um, when you hear how much they care about the environment and how much they're trying to do the right thing, um, I, I never really have thought of myself as just oil and gas. I've always been energy. Um, but what we've done is just we freed the world, you know, to to do things. I mean, most of our world exists because of oil and gas. And uh, that at the core, if you look, you look at the why of oil and gas, is there's that feeling that because you get to travel. So I've got to travel all over the world in my career. And watching China evolve, you know, that's oil and gas. You know, that's things that have made their uh, environment be able to change. India, you watch them change as they get access to energy. Low-cost energy has, has made such a difference and traveling the world. I mean, this, this is something we've gained because of low-cost energy. There is an absolute direct correlation if you look at any any line graph between extreme poverty and energy consumption energy Correct. use and availability i mean it, it is really you know people really they focus in on small minute things and don't realize just how much progress we've made well and, and people it. i mean in our world in the western world everyone looks at exxon mobile and says look at that look at the size of that company yet they're what number 36 in the world the others no. are all countries yeah uh, and, you know, people miss that. People miss, even even miss that what happened with the shale revolution was we used to import 80% of our oil. And we got to a point where almost, you know, we were maybe 10%. Yeah. And that that meant a lot of the reasons we have to to support this country. We had to be able to get energy infrastructure. And also and, political and access. purposes. What created well. a lot of the politics that we were living with. And as much as everyone tried, oh, no, that's not why things happen. There's, I mean, we're friends with people that oh, we do. maybe wouldn't be friends with um, if we didn't have some need. And so it caused this kind of freedom of uh, independence. And, and I think that's where alternative energy is going, is everybody doesn't like that political tie. Everybody wants energy for themselves. And so, uh, unfortunately, a lot of it's high-cost energy right now, but, but I think that will change over time, though we'll still learn other ways to harness um, other methods. Well, you know, as we, you know, as we said, it's, it's, it has changed the world for better, but it's not perfect. And, but we're getting there, right? We're, yeah. we're, uh, the process improvement is, you know, co a constant thing. And yeah, yeah. that's what electric fracking is. It's, and, uh, can you talk a little bit about that and sure. how it's better than conventional fracking? It's, it's pretty simple. And I, and I think it's not just in, in the fracking world, but fracking is just a high user of fuels. And so you're looking at, um, some of it's just natural efficiency, I think. Um, a lot of other industries or a lot of even parts of our industry kind of moved out of what is a prime diesel uh, uh, method to to frack. And so basically it was brute force and the easiest way we could think to do it. And, uh, and nothing new kind of happened in that space because everyone was busy trying to produce energy at, at our, in, a, in a boom market. Um, but at the same time, as everyone starts to look at it and go, this is just um, a carbon footprint issue. But in reality, it becomes a cost issue too. Uh, this idea, everyone thinks, oh, anytime you're moving to um, any kind of improvement of carbon footprint, it's just going to cost you. Well, EFRAC is, is an example of it. It isn't that way. So, I mean, what you end up doing is moving from a diesel fuel to a gas fuel, or you can, you can go to uh, electric if you've got highline power. Um, but you start looking at a method of saying, what have we readily got? So normally in a lot of fields, you'll see them burning off excess gas. Um, that's a potential to actually capture and use that gas as your base fuel. So from cost standpoint, it, it really gets quite good. 
but also you're starting to use electric power, which uh, allows you to be a lot more compact, a lot more controlled in the environment. And uh, you can actually get a better performance um, out of a system. So you're looking at smaller spaces, which is one of the challenges of fracking is it, it takes a lot of space in a pad. Um, but you're looking at, a, you know, maybe half the amount of trucks that you need to do the same work. You're also looking at a, a much less uh, cost as well as amount of fuel that you're going to use to do the same job. And so your, your carbon imp uh, impact of using diesel is very high. Using gas is, is much, much lower. And then running electric gets into the efficiency side. So everything there is just shrinking and shrinking um, the performance. And this system does cost a bit more per unit. But uh, when you put it together, you're using about half the amount of, of pumpers. And so your total amount that you're running, as well as the energy that you're using, is a lot more efficient. Um, there's not a lot of mechanism in there when you're using electric. Uh, so it's, uh, it, just, it, just, it just cleans up everything uh, from, from trying to get the same, the same output. I wanted to focus on one thing you said about the burnoff. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you've been out in West Texas or south of San Antonio, you've seen that, right? Uh, most people don't know what that is or why it's or happening. Why does that happen? Uh, and it seems like in my research on this, it seems like you're now capturing that instead of burning it off and right. you're, reusing, you're using it right. to fuel the pumping, which that's an efficiency win in a big way, right? right. And, and so can you, is that what, tell, can tell us why that was happening and how well, it's, you know. Generally, it's the cost of moving it or managing it, uh, you know, and it's really, it's really a cost thing. If you're, if you're targeting oil and you're producing gas and um, trying to manage that gas um, has a cost and uh, didn't, didn't add up. And so if you have something localized where you're still using that same gas, it saves you in transportation. Uh, and it, it always was odd to me. I watched it for years and went, what? At least put a large your your hot water heater on, on top of that thing, you know. <laughs> Let's something. get something out of it. Don't just be burning off in the air. Um, but it really just was the economics that that it didn't make sense. It was the best way to get rid of it. And uh, and as people have looked at that, oh well, that's that's not so good, you know. And so they're they're starting to use that gas, um, which would which is great. I think reuse of that and finding ways to use that. Uh, the general efficiency. I mean, we're we're doing it in other areas. I mean, we have. When we do heavy lift with cranes or or uh, drawworks inside of a derrick, anytime we're using a braking system, we're learning how to capture that energy and do what cars do. You grab the the energy off the brake system, and you turn that back into reusable energy. And so that efficiency and footprint work is happening across uh, all of the uh, all of the systems that we work on. So so efrac is is just another way of doing that, getting the total footprint down. Then you start looking at what we can do with with carbon capture. Uh, and being able to take that and, and then put that back into the structures, which we we, we invented this concept only because we were doing it anyway. So when, when you have one of those large reservoirs and you imagine you've put your straw in and you're trying to suck out as much as you can, eventually some of it is trapped and you can't get it with enough force. So what you do is you put a well in the other side and you can apply anything in there, be it water, be it um, uh, carbon, so you can actually be be pumping it down into the structure and it'll permanently stay in the earth. So technically you're putting the carbon back where it came from. Um, so that's something we developed just to get more oil and gas out. But I mean, we can do that with all of the, all the structures that we've drilled over years. There's, there's actually a gap in there where you can go and take the carbon and let it not go into the, uh, the so CO2. Is that commissioning or what's that? What would that be? Um, it's, I mean, 
just carbon capture and, and storage. I mean, it's a it's a simple storage method for. Does is there a difference? You know, some of the things you know in in, in you know traditional fracking into into e fracking. Is it is there a change in water pressure? The type of chemicals used or any of that with this There's, system? Um, no, the the pressures are just to break the rocks. So I mean, it's uh, they do use various mixes in there. Um, and there's lots of, um, so even when we drill wells, there's lots of water comes out. So there's, there, we've, we've really advanced the process of reusing that water, getting it uh, cleaned up and, and making it reusable. Um, so we get brackish water most times when we drill. So the earth has already around the hydrocarbons has that kind of blended uh, water. And so when we, we, we can pump in and there, there are certainly lots of technologies to look at. How do you clean the water coming back? Uh, but but going in, it's really just about finding ways to apply pressure. And you'll put in sand and you'll put in structure to try and, once you've cracked the rock, you, there's there's uh, molecules in there to keep it open. And so you don't want it to go collapse. If you broke it and then it just collapsed, it wouldn't work. And so they're looking at propants that can uh, hold it together. So the mix has changed, but generally we're not seeing that as a, as a big issue. It's a perceived issue for people because it's not clean water or it's not, you know, you're not seeing a lot of it come back, um, but I think there's there's other issues with water that that um, we we end up processing water a lot. Um, you know, we've we've made a technology that sits on top of uh, sorry on the bottom of the sea that actually um, cleans water seawater, and it uses the pressure of the water above it, the hydrostatic head, it's called, um, and that is the energy base for the system, and so the water just pushes itself through the filters. And I'll sit down there for four years just cleaning water. And then we'll put down a, a salt removal system. And we same same thing, we're using that to inject uh, into the earth because the, the purer that water, the better it works at getting through the structures. Well, that's, I mean, that's a development right now, but that's potable water that you're creating under the water. Right, okay. So it's kind of an interesting idea of now, where do we need water all over the world, right? So it starts to be interesting. So oil and gas is often working in these spaces and developing technologies that you can take other places. So, I mean, we did that with, uh, when you lose pressure in a well, you see these nodding donkeys. Um, we have uh, um, progressive cavity pumps that we will run off a motor and they will suck up whatever is in there. And so we actually started moving those into Africa uh, to get water out for, for third world countries and we started running them off solar. And now we've moved it into Australia and we're using it for small farms in Australia so that they can actually get water to build farms across Australia. So, I mean, this is oil field technology taken somewhere else. That's, yeah, it's kind of like the old thing you heard about the space race and all the technology that exactly. came from that. Well, and it's, there's, there's money in focus. So we've been pulled into renewables um, because they've been stuck in this government money trap, right? Once you start getting money for the government to do something, um, your business side kind of weakens because you're used to being fed and you're not driven by business. And so we've been moving into all of those fronts really quickly because they, about seven years ago, we got invited to start playing more because they needed our thinking. They needed our ingenuity, our investment, and our uh, industrialization. Um, and so, yeah, we're we're quite big in a lot of those areas. Well, clean water, now, I didn't, didn't you know, this is new to me to hear, and so it's really exciting because, yeah. you know, uh, I was at a conference in Sweden years ago, and a guy he was he he, he said the following, and, and you know I'm uh, changing it up a little bit, but he essentially said half of the world, half of the death 
in the world could be prevented with access oh, to clean sure. water. So sewage systems too. And it just blows not, you away. Yeah, I mean that's there's a I mean that's a lot of what various foundations are working on around the world. We actually do sewage systems just by the way, which is bizarre. Which means we also do biogas systems. We're we're we have some really weird machines that look like they're from a James Bond movie, giant they're called munchers and grinders. Okay. And they take up anything that's coming into a sewer system and break it down. But but when you see that James Bond moment where he's looking at these big teeth of a steel thing, yeah, we make those. And uh, we move any slurry. So same as we're moving slurries all the time uh, in oil. And uh, we, we do the same. We, we move toothpaste. We move wine. We move whatever. Whatever slurry you want to move, we're, we're in that process. So that's the technology from oil and gas working in other industries. So, yeah, we, we often take our stuff and uh, break, put, it, put it into other businesses, which is kind of how renewables has been. You know, we're taking our technology over there. What changed to drive so quickly the electric fracking? And, and one thing, the one reason I say it is because I can, I, you know, read an article two years ago where the CEO of Halliburton clearly said no. Yeah, not going to happen. And, well, and, and you have to understand his position. It's he expensive. Owns, he owns a lot of frack fleet. So saying something more expensive I have to buy now, especially if you're in any, any rental business. If I, if I said, okay, you've got a taxi business, and by the way, now you've got to run Teslas, you'd be like, no, that is a terrible idea. Can you imagine if I had to replace all of my cars? They go to scrap and I have to buy Teslas. That's a terrible idea. Well, okay, but if a new taxi company turn, turns up and goes, I'm going to start with, okay, great. Yeah. No problem. Same, same thing. The economics are there. They're holding an existing fleet. It's just, no, because it's cheaper to just use what I have. Well, what made it flip is the oil companies are saying, wait a minute, I can have this at a much lower carbon footprint. You got the job. You got one of those? I'll take it. That's what's happening. Great. And so, I mean, we're, we're just, and, and a lot of it was kind of R&D, uh, but we've really got to the point here where we've made, from our experience on other systems, we've really made a, a, <clears throat> a more industrialized solution that we'll be able to multiply and run. So, I mean, right now we're just testing. So we're, um, we've completed our first test, which is kind of probably what you saw that led to this conversation. Uh, but we're doing about five. We've got five different operators, five different applications with about four different solutions for energy. So sometimes you're looking at Highline, sometimes you're looking at some kind of blend. Uh, but, but yeah, we're looking at, we're kind of agnostic to where the, what the energy is coming in uh, for an electrical frack feed. And I'm I'm certain you know the executive team isn't the you know way I understand it is the U.S. can't compete unless unless it keeps getting more and more efficient, right? Yeah, and it's I mean it's a nice thing, honestly. I mean we we took energy costs down so low. It's actually been a problem for for the renewables world because uh, your gas price is so low. Your um, once you get once you've got all that low. Um, it creates tension, but there's always a competition for that. There's every everyone's racing to lower their costs, and but I think doing it environmentally. I really, the day I came in, I wasn't an oil and gas guy. I wasn't really choosing it. I'd seen it in my town. Um, so watching the change of oil and gas and how it's become very much, I think it's going to be the solution to a lot of the energy problems. But taking what we do, because there isn't any solution out there that says. We're in a real energy transition because a transition would mean we could flip over and survive. And that's kind of what California did. They said, hey, turn off these two nuclear power plants and let's just use renew renewables. And, and then when it's a bad day, they went, oh, not everyone's going to get power today. You know, sorry. Uh, because something like nuclear is like it's a constant generator. 
which is where geothermal gets really interesting because it's a constant generator. We, we have all this energy in the earth we could just tap into. Interestingly, when we go drill shales, you're up at 300 degrees. Uh, I mean, there's, that's pretty hot. Comes up hot. So there's, there's possibilities. There's people working on new geothermal, which will say, you know, let's go into, you know, a lot of these areas and start learning how to get electricity converted out of this heat in the ground. So there's, there's, there's just interesting things, I think, from our, uh, our, all of our developments have this kind of crossover as we, I think we will be the, the real energy um, transition group, oil and gas. I think we're going to be the ones who bring in and facilitate geothermal facilitate a lot more offshore wind but we're talking about it next to platforms where you're saying okay can we have so we have a design for a um a semi-submersible that is a wind carrying semi a tri-floater we call it and we're looking at that in norway where could you generate your power uh off of the wind next to the platform i'm mean, sure you could yeah well, that, i've been there you probably can yeah you, you've, <laughs> you've felt that rain coming windy. straight at you yeah yeah there's the rain doesn't fall down it comes from in the front of you it's yeah, there's, so there's a there's a huge move in scotland because they've realized they have the power source you know all those years complaining about wind and rain and uh, they actually have it so they're they're looking at hydrogen production using offshore platforms but harnessing harnessing uh, uh, wind and there's plenty of it so yeah well the the ideal uh frack uh electric frack unit resulting in 89 percent fuel cost savings 40 yeah. percent cost of ownership savings yeah and 42 percent over the road traffic yeah you've you've done your math that's that is, good that is a lot of that's a lot there. of cut that's a lot it's of good. a lot of cut it, it, it's it's it, it's really undeniable and that's where saying I've got to, uh, this is an expensive thing, we shouldn't do it. Well, no, it, it pays off on some. On, um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked exclusively environmental. How is this process or how, how are these units safer? Um, in, in not just for the environment, but safer for the individual, for the personnel? People, well, there's less people, obviously. Mm. The, the, uh, one of the things that happened with fracking and, and the type of wells that we had to do, which is high density, um, the actual traffic um, is a problem and you don't really think of it. But if you ever want to take Google Maps and look at Midland and uh, look at that in a satellite view, you'll be surprised at how many pads had to go down because uh, the intensity of work for, for shale is uh, it's actually more efficient to be offshore. But in shale, you get your money faster. And so the business side moved into shale more as a risk management technique. And I can get my money back in 80 days rather than eight years. So, you know, that's a, that's a, a, good, a good economic deal. So that's kind of why it happens. Um, but it has this intensity of pad sites because you're going in and you're drilling these wells. They deplete pretty fast. Um, and so you had to get really efficient at making them. And no one really was looking at the, the impact because they were just trying to let's get as many done as we can. And as you get some kind of relief downturns are great for, for reviewing, you know, because when you're in an upturn, you just go. If you're trying to invent something in an upturn, you're going you're gonna to miss and so now we're in this kind of regression where everyone's like, okay, now what 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 could we do better? And uh, it's it's not just cost management; it is that that impact of of trucks going to and from. I mean, for environments, it's a mass of human beings that are going to be there, and it starts to impact everything. And so, if you can reduce that, uh, these are brought in on trucks. Um, each, if you're doing half of those trucks, that's half of the trucks. That's half of the fuel, half of the people. Uh, in the environment and uh, so there's there's that's that's a pretty good uh, 
measure, I think, of of getting safer. And then um, previously there was a lot of frac iron that was sitting there. We've we've actually developed these flexible hoses that we didn't realize were going to be such a big hit. But you know, there's been problems with them in the past. But we developed a technology that allows you to actually run a simple hose. Uh, we also have um, mechanical devices that can stop stop having people working at heights, stop people working around high pressure. And so we're we're looking at that that across the whole frac area. So we're we're developing a place where you can, and we did this on drilling rigs where we removed people uh, from dangerous areas. We're doing the exact same thing on all of our technologies. Are moving towards how do we make it a safer environment? Increase process safety. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. And so you go, you kind of go down this journey of mechanization to automation. Um, we've done that on most of our systems, but in the frac world, even in the intervention world, a lot less because they were going so so fast and quick. And now that we're pulling back, we're taking the same technology we use on drilling rigs. So now you actually have data centers so you can look at what's efficient. You can take people away who were previously analyzing or reading gauges or looking at maintenance work and doing maintenance based on when something breaks or, or you know, basically it was break fix. But we can actually start predicting. And so we're able to now say, in a few weeks, this is going to go. Uh, and then someone can get the part. You don't have to hold the parts so close anymore to the to the facilities. You can get it to come out just in time. Uh, people can plan their work. There's less injury. There's less things going wrong. So all of that that data part of the business is is just about to change. And so our our frac systems that we're bringing out these efrac systems have data trucks with them. And so you can actually look at everything that's happening. And suddenly you're having the digital world move really fast into your space. And that, that provides a, a much safer working environment. Great. Great. Um, well, you know, you had mentioned um, something that kind of caught my, you know, my ear a little bit ago, and that was the, you believe oil and gas companies will lead the renewable race. Absolutely. And, and uh, can, you, can you speak on that a little bit? I guess a couple of things I'm, I'm asking is what is your vision? Like what do you think is going to happen is there anything you can talk about that, you know, initiatives that may be public uh, that, in, that your company is working on? And what, what is your what do you see being the most uh, promising technology, what's being worked on and things like that? Well, thing, the thing that is, I mean, I was on the phone this morning with our uh, Gusto MSC group. And so they build, they design and build hulls um, and have done jackups mostly. They, they do floaters as well. Um, but they are, they're just so busy with the installation system so we we build about or we design and equip 75 percent of the wind installation vessels offshore and the reason is they're the same as the drilling vessels it's jackups it's the same technology and so basically that's what installs uh the wind systems offshore and fixed wind um so that for now is already you know it's oil field technology doing the job um, we're using the same lifting system. So we have a large lifting and handling group that, that you'll see our, our logo on ships and on all sorts of applications around the world with the cranes because we didn't say, oh, no, only oil and gas can buy this. We'll sell to anyone who has money. Um, and so that, that kind of grew out into that. So there's things like that. Um, what's really interesting to me right now is, is, uh, is the um, hot rocks, you know, going in and saying, okay, so if we're saying – for geothermal, we, we're going to be near volcanoes, let's say, which so you, you start going to the edge of the faults and saying, okay, this is a great place to get in, get really hot uh, rock. Then so Iceland's cool and California is going to be okay. And you, you kind of, that that's the world. Chile, you've know, got all these different places around the world um, where it happens. But you start saying, well, we know that there's heat 
in the earth. And so there's a there's a large oil and gas movement into is there something else technology wise that we can do in geothermal to to generate energy um, out of the ground? Canada probably led the fastest um, recently because they have these closed loop designs where you'll actually build a loop in the earth um, and you'll just pump water in and hot water and steam coming out. You know, it's a it's a pretty simple kind of concept, but but saying okay, let's start saying can we just take the hot earth that's underneath us. Um, and use our directional technologies and say, let's let's see if we can turn that into energy. And Canada is looking at energy transition, and their rig count was down so much, their 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 work was down, and they they really said, let's go after this. Let's start saying geothermal. Let's find some new technologies. They have really good kind of startups in that space. There's a quite a number in our space, but now you've got, I won't say the names, but there are majors who are going out there saying, what if we did what we did in shale? or geothermal? What if we started producing wells that can convert the Earth's heat into electricity? So it's a it's a fairly underfunded part of renewables. Um, so when you go there, if we go there and look at what it is, it's a pretty basic rig they use. It's all been low cost. Some of the technologies that we've developed, they don't have or use because they're too expensive. But you consider that, you consider this more promising than other things. Uh, I think I think in steady-based power, it's really interesting. I think where we are in wind and solar is where we are, and they're just growing them. And the government focus has said, don't change it, just make it bigger. So now we're looking at gigantic structures offshore um, to capture wind. And I think we'll keep doing that. I, I don't think it's the most optimal. I don't think a lot of them are the most optimal. Um, I like that from an, our industry, geothermal is, is, a, is a good growth potential. We'll see. <laughs> it's definitely got to be seen. Um, there is so much money in this space. It's it's ridiculous. There's government money and there's market money because everyone doesn't even care if it's a good idea. They're going to fund it. And so there's a lot of crazies out there doing things that you're like, really a stupid idea. But but hey, someone's going to fund it because there's a lot of non-discerning. It's a bit of a bubble right now. A lot do of non-discerning buyers. But do you um, yourself, you know, your personal opinion? Do you see solar and wind? As so we do some in solar. And we do quite a bit. We have a new technology we're developing. That um, so we did wind towers for years. And the thing about wind and solar is the way they got the cost out was they Walmarted it. If that makes sense to you, if I use that as a term, if that's an official term, or if I'm going to get sued. But <laughs> they looked in and they said, just get the price down. Whoever supplies in the world. So we were out of that game. We built them in California. We got a job in Arizona. We couldn't afford to ship it because the margin's all gone, right? So you end up with really low-cost suppliers, which can have quality issues. Not sure if that will be the case. The U.S. government's been trying to grab that back into the U.S., so they've been willing to fund better technology. And um, For us, we've, we, we're uh, working with a company called Keystone, and we've given them our mobile rig plant because uh, we're not building a lot right now. And um, and they're looking at, um, if you're going to do large structures, you see these you know, large blades and large towers being moved, it's a nightmare. So we're looking at, can you build them on site? And so we're building a system that takes the factory to the site and starts to spiral uh, weld together the structure. So you can actually build it on site. We do it in fiberglass also. We're one of the world's biggest fiberglass and, and composite companies. And we have a company that will send, was literally sending a fiberglass factory to spin up uh, this this uh, large 60-foot container, you know. And those those ideas of send the factory rather than send the big things, send the raw materials and build them, 
Um, so we're doing that because um, that'd be, that'd be a breakthrough for for wind towers. So we're we're there. Um, we, we're designing the hulls. Um, we have some solar work. We've been working on um, how to make an easier to install solar system. It's very labor intensive right now, and and there's damage in transition. And so we've we've got that up in up in my test facility right now. We've got the first kind of prototype of that. Um, whether that's the, it's a hard some of those are hard markets to play in when there's if you have so many people playing and they're crushing the cost, it ends up being you know it, it's it'll limit your technology innovation. Similar to where geothermal was, is it's kind of had limited investment and innovation. So we're playing in that. We're playing around with that. There are things I can't talk about, but um, we 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 start about seven years on a program of cutting the cost of most renewable ideas in half, and we just started brainstorming how could you do that. Um, so there's there's a few things in that space. Uh, we have a new one of the problems in installing wind towers on land is that they're uh, in windy places, so you need a crane to do that. It's an expensive crane, and then you have to wait. For the wind to go down <laughs> but you're there because it's windy it's right windy there so we we took our uh, rig moving technology and built uh, have a prototype structure that can stay and work in all of those high wind environments and um will will walk itself just like we do with rigs across the field that was an amazing thing <laughs> when i saw the walking rigs for the first time and again people listening that's been in oil and gas for years that's nothing they've seen this yeah. right and large the, structures oh I was, do it for years. It's amazing. It's I mean, mind blowing. I couldn't believe uh, this was happening. Yeah, I was like, they're moving an entire rig platform, and it looks like it looks like a turtle walking. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it does. It lifts and it skids, and then it drops, and it lifts and it skids, and it's just lifting its feet up. It's it's walking, and it's pretty precise and pretty fast at this point. Um, but they, I mean, we've been doing it. Arctic and Middle East is where all that started. When we went to extreme environments, the only reason rigs break down to small structures to move is because we were on road systems. Um, but when you were in the Arctic or when you were in the desert, there was no roads. And so you start moving giant structures um, on their own. So normally when the rigs move, it's they don't walk down the street. In the U.S., they walk between pads. Um, but if you go to um, up uh, northern Canada or, or uh, up in you know Anchorage around that area, when you're, when you're up in Alaska or in the Middle East, they have large wheels, like gigantic wheel systems, and they'll, they'll drive the whole thing. Um, mm. It's incredible. Big, big structures moving distances. Um, the Russians have been doing skidding rigs on what, what look like large train lines. They're they're just gigantic structures that the whole rig will skid along. What do you foresee as the uh, when it comes to the uh, high? This is a wind energy to solar yeah. energy. Um, what do you see as a ultimate? I guess goal or i guess you know a possible goal of of what percentage of our use could they ever compromise i mean um, you know some european countries are showing 30 percent you know usage out of alternative energies yeah i mean I, I think you give it time i think there's still more to happen um I, I i don't know what that estimate is i know that if we can i think the constant work on electrical production however however we get it is interesting i think wind it doesn't multiply out around the world. It will multiply as much as it can. And I think we'll see a lot more offshore just because of the real estate. You know, there's plenty of space out there. Um, and it's I've seen a lot of places with wind on land where you're like, okay, this is this is ugly. Um, and the, there's lots of some What's who say, it's beautiful. You're like, well, I don't know if it's beautiful. Some people thought chimneys were beautiful out of factories, but, you know, were they? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's, it's like when we, you know, you smell a, 
production of oil here, people say it smells like money, you know, or yeah. a farmer will, the smells they produce, you know, it smells like money, but, you know, not great. But um, I think there's there's so many good things yet untapped. I think hydrogen is going to be fun. Uh, I think there's a lot yet, and I'm seeing a ramp towards hydrogen. Uh, certainly, originally kind of blue hydrogen where you're looking at uh, using gas and doing carbon storage with it. I think we'll see conversion of platforms into hydrogen producers, and you'll see ships becoming hydrogen users. Um, we're looking at subsea storage of ammonia. So we have a, a, one of the challenges with hydrogen and, and ammonia is that you need to pressurize it to keep it in the state that you need it. But if you put it under the water, it is naturally pressurized. Mm. So it stores for much less cost and uh, hardware. And so we're, we're developing that. We had subsea gas and oil tankers or tanks that we were creating for underwater storage. And uh, so, yeah, hydrogen and probably ammonia will be the, the burning fuel. Um, I think we'll see that. I think we'll see a lot more uh, ammonia and carbon capture at the same time. That's I, I hadn't read anything about that. I'll have to look into that. Well, in hydrogen vehicles, you'll see it. I mean, a lot of our, um, there's actually a supply problem because especially if you go into ammonia because it's being used, our, our farms and all the food we're producing is coming out of fertilizers that, that are ammonia-based. But um, but it it's, it also could could be a really great fuel for us. Um, hydrogen has its challenges. So you, conversion of hydrogen, people talk about blending hydrogen with all, with gas and and moving it. it. It isn't a molecule that likes to be contained or moved easily. So there's some challenges there. But but you'll see our our forklifts across the U.S. are using hydrogen, and you're going to see more and more. Back in my hometown, all the buses run on hydrogen, and you're, you're seeing more and more use of it. Whereas everyone said, "Oh yeah, that's never coming." Um, seems seems well, to be. Well, we heard that about natural gas, and it never, yeah, never really, it never came to fruition. Came. I mean, um, well, there's there, there's political reason too. There's well, that resistance was kind of what to I was natural gas. Ask you. I wasn't real sure because I used to be in finished product, finished yeah. lubricants, and things like that. And I, you know, we were at the very beginning of okay, can we we can we produce automobile engine, automobile engine oils and things like that from natural gas as opposed to base oil, right? Yeah, and. We could, and to this day, I still think Qatar is the only country doing it. I'm yeah. just like I never understood why that. I don't know. At least it's, that couldn't yeah. be done. It's kind of like it's kind of like LNG. I mean, a lot of these things get caught in the same idea as LNG, where you're like, well, sure, can you take gas, liquefy it, ship it somewhere else, and then deliquefy it? So you're going to use energy to convert energy to get it back to energy. Like all of that, the math does not up. You know, it's similar to when you ship hydrogen. Let's put it into a gas. I mean, everything you do, which is transitional, has a cost. So I don't know. I think it's economics in some of it. And some of it's just the technology isn't there in the drive. You're going to see for at least four years in the U.S., tons of money going to uh, trying to try out these things. And what they learned in Europe, and we all, we all kind of watched and said, expensive energy, good idea for your country or not? Cheap energy, expensive energy. How's that going to go in the long run? And so they've, they've had challenges with it because it didn't. It was expensive energy. But as they... I think the UK was first to start seeing when they pulled back government funds, the wind farms still made sense. So they got to the point where, okay, they're breaking even. They're, they're, and now they're moving into making money. So that kickstart idea is what's generating now in the US, where if you've got an idea of how we could do this, there's a government here who's saying, I'm going to fund you just to go faster instead of waiting 20 years. What can I do uh, to make this happen? Yeah, I think um, you know the large consensus doesn't really understand or believe, have a belief in the market, right? Yeah. I I believe in the market 
to correct things, and yeah, they yeah. always do. Yeah, yeah. And 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 people don't realize we've been correcting this for forty years now. Right. Our carbon footprint in the United States is continuously oh, dropping. Yeah, it's we're fundamentally we're not the problem. Yeah, but that that comes just with improvement of efficiency. And I saw it in Europe; they probably pushed efficiency faster than we did. But we're catching up because there's money associated, like you say, market drives, find a way. right? And and that's why I think green things actually, when they're done properly, have have a, a benefit financially. Yeah, they just can't be, uh, in my opinion. If there needs to be a back off of the shoving it from the government, shoving it down people's throats, well, and there, uh, you can look at it that way. I I don't think it's we're not looking at this massive switch that's going to happen. We're mm-hmm. not going to be off oil and gas, and so getting oil and gas into a much better carbon footprint, easy. Let's let's do that, and we're already doing it, which is the funny thing. And because it's efficient, and I, I really believe that's that's the EFRAC story, is it, in perception, oh, that's too expensive. If you have sunk capital, yes. What is the what is uh, the, your, your I guess what you of your knowledge? What is the current um, storage we have? Like you, know, you always hear, we've oh we've got fifty years of natural gas. We've got oh, 100, gas, 300. Oh yeah, we're we're definitely over our lifetimes. You know, in, yeah. in what's available because shale we didn't even finish. Finding, I mean, there, there, there's tons. I mean, you've got Argentina's just beginning in Morta, and that's the the thickest shale we've ever seen. They're they're just drilling straight, you know, yeah. and and they're getting you know shale production. You can still find dinosaur bones but, hanging around the ground. Yeah, in but but just it's just really thick. It's just yeah. a, it's a lot. We're used to very thin shales where we have to you know go horizontal through them. Um, they've they've just got this bizarre shale. I mean, even though they all claimed Poland doesn't have a good shale. The whole country of Poland is shale underneath it. There's a tiny corner without shale. And uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. All of the Eagleford doesn't like, someone didn't just cut the bottom of the Eagleford off and say, okay, there, there it's over. It's not America anymore. Mexico has got all the rest, the tail end of that running into Mexico that's undeveloped. It, it doesn't end and we haven't finished doing what we can do in shale production, but shale, shale kind of is bottom of the barrel-ish, but it's a massive amount um, so, I mean, gas, I mean, we, we were not trying to get a lot of gas out, which, cause otherwise we'd have a much higher, people would have tried to manage the gas price up a bit cause it's been so low. But what happened was in shale was the, the use it or lose it requirements. You're going to have to drill. If you have a lease, you have to do a certain amount of work, which meant everyone was buying leases and producing gas, not to the full extent they could just to keep the lease. And suddenly, I mean, Canada's out of business. We put Canada out of the gas business. I think that might fast. be kind of an unknown thing. I guess that's kind of new to me. What you just said, if you, you if, have you a, ha- if you have a lease, you have to you have to do something about it, right? You have to develop it. Otherwise, you might lose your loose lease. Well, that that doesn't sound very conductive to good decision making. It is what it is. Well, 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 I mean, they're trying to generate cash out of the leases, right? And so it started, I think it was Alaska was where that all began. They really started, and, and I think the oil companies started doing it to each other. Like, okay, you can be my partner, but if you don't develop and I don't see something, then I'm, then I'm going to cut you out of this deal. And um, so I think a lot of gas was, has been developed inadvertently, um, which, I mean, we, we, you have to understand, we were getting our gas from Canada. And why they talk LNG now is they have all this gas with nowhere to sell it to. Because, you know, North America, I mean, they were, they were doing a great job of giving us gas and suddenly we produced our own. And uh, that's the only, if anyone's talking LNG, this is a more of a government uh, power game or a, or, or a gas or energy producer game of I need to do something with my gas and I'm not near the market. 
so I'm going to have to liquefy it, ship it, and sell it. Well, David, I, you know, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, what you do is very exciting. I, lo- I love talking about it. I could probably I could probably keep you here all day just trying to pick funny. your brain about it. And uh, what NOV is doing is is really fantastic and exciting. Um, I want to ask you something, uh, you know, uh, on a more personal level. Uh, I read in one of your uh, biographies that you were involved in a uh, nonprofit that, uh, you know, I, I didn't get much information, but it's involved in helping uh, victims of the uh, sex trafficking what, what what exactly are you doing there? What is that a, what, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, about a decade ago, I um, started getting involved in this. My wife did, and I was just alongside. And, you know, it was it's a shocking subject. So the, the, um, the plight of modern-day slavery, which we thought was a world issue, turned out was also a U.S. issue. That the U.S. is, a, is quite complicit without even knowing it in, in dealing in uh, human beings. Uh, more than it has in any of its history. So we're we're looking at, uh, I think, 2016 UT and uh, the uh, governor's office did a study and came out with about Texas, uh, about 300, I think it's 314,000 people trafficked in Texas. Wow. Um, every year. So um, getting into that and understanding it. And so we we started, my wife started working actually undercover originally. She got trained and started working in Houston because a lot of files were being dropped on trafficking cases and trying to work out why. Um, then I found out how dangerous that was. She had clients that they were working through court cases trying to help the legal system understand they were trafficked. Um, they're not criminals. They've been you know, forced into this environment through fraud or coercion or however. And then uh, things things evolved. I learned that that it's uh, in Houston. It's the the trafficking, sex trafficking, has moved to probably around seventy five percent American uh, kids usually who they traffic. Uh, the use of social media and how they can brainwash children uh, into trafficking. They think they've got a boyfriend, girlfriend, or friend, and they they get pulled off into an environment. And then they use uh, what are basically cult techniques of, of belonging. Uh, as well as, uh, um, you know, just conditioning of human beings and what's possible, which is, yeah, they call originally the, the first part is grooming. It's that's the drawing them into the relationship, uh, or the friendship. And, uh, so it's not like taking the movie anymore. They don't just go grab them and, and lock them up because they've, they look at human beings as a product and they work out how to control and manipulate them. And it's cheaper for them and they can, they can, they actually get to a point where they're not afraid of them running away. And so we found a, a, um, a recovery group called Redeem that was helping that side of, of getting them out of the, you know, once they choose to leave or they try to leave, there's a place for them to go. Uh, we found that if most people were rescued and put into a shelter, 80% of them would return uh, to the life because they've been brainwashed to do so. So they're not so afraid of when, they, when people, you know, get out because they don't expect, they expect to see them back. They've spent a lot of work brainwashing them. And so that process is extremely expensive. And although the government, local governments become quite aware on sex trafficking and started to do something about it, um, and everyone loves to be in the subject. So you get the scary people you might know who will post lots of horrible, scary things about how dangerous our world is and it's all around you and it's around your kids and here's how bad it is and here's the people and here's the numbers. Um, those people... Um, do that. They they do a great job of creating awareness and sometimes they just scare people from learning more. Um, so I started to realize 
we've got to do something to get professionals who can make a difference involved. And so I, I went on the board of this organization about three, just over three years ago, saw their numbers and said, man, all, all you need is money. Your, your only problem here is money. Um, and that's not so bad in my world. In their world, that's, well, yeah, that's our problem. Like, it's really hard. And I'm like, no, it's not that hard. And I looked at their marketing when this really isn't that good. And so I put a post on LinkedIn and said, who wants to help? Like, this is like, what are you, for or against slavery? You know, who wants to help um, do, put some muscle behind the marketing for this organization that's doing recovering for sex trafficking? And overnight, it was like 56,000 uh, views of the post and forwards and all that stuff going on. So we, you know, a guy from work kind of called and said, we need, we need to do something. This is, this is a big deal. So we set up uh, in a second cup, which is an anti-trafficking coffee shop in Houston. So we went there and 50 people turned up and uh, we engaged them and said, okay, I, I set out tables with to put the names of different departments in, in marketing and said, go to the one that you're most specialist in. And then I said, brainstorm here. We gave them information about the organization, brainstorm what we could do. They all brainstormed. Someone come up and present. So everyone who, the people who came up and presented, I said, you are now in charge of this department. Uh, we'll meet in a month and let's start helping this organization. And that grew and grew uh, to helping lots of organizations that grew outside of marketing, grew whatever help that any organization needs who's doing the recovery side of sex trafficking. We find a way to, we actually assess people coming in as professionals and we try and work out what is your lifestyle like? What can you really afford? Because everyone, when they get passionate at first about a subject, says, I'm in. And once they latch to an organization, you can't get out. And guilt is not going to help. So like you're like feeling bad and you're hating helping an organization. And so what we do is we create a project structure where you don't get locked into an organization. You do something for them for a day, for a week, for three months, whatever you, you think you can do. And you do what's easy for you, the stuff you love, not just the stuff they need. So we have about 400 people have done work for organizations. And sometimes they're not needed for a couple of years or they're not available, don't want to be available. Sometimes they want to, some people do it all the time. Um, but we manage burnout with the people doing the work so that you you only do as as much as is easy for you. Um, and if everyone does that, we can all actually produce great work uh, for these organizations. So we do it. It's a lot of fun, great community. We all went to a basketball game last night. It was just It's called Redeem. Uh, Redeemed is the organiza first organization we helped. Red M is what we call ourselves. So we, we kind of originally were thinking about the name Redeemed, uh, but we kind of went for... Uh, I think, let's see if I can get it right. We're resource uh, empowerment. Uh, so we're, we are the resource and we're resourcing, um, empowering, empowering actually people in the organization to develop who, like you can turn up and say, I'm a graphic designer, but I need to grow. Or you can be a top of the line filmmaker and you can put someone. So that's the, the empowerment is on, on both sides and develop. And so we look at developing the organization so that they don't need us as much. So that's kind of the red part. So Red M is our organization and we are, at joinredm is the website.com. Okay. And you can find us in most social media under Red M the movement. And on, let's see, YouTube is also join Red M. So. Okay. When, um, when I post the, the podcast online, I'll include that information in there for the listeners to, to go take a look at it. Uh, listen, I, I think that is fantastic. I, I thank you for you and your wife for the courage and um, giving yourself to that. I, you know, I think, I believe it's important to give back. I've been involved in an organization called Triggers Toys for years and it's, uh, you know, children's organization and, you know, it's, there's nothing better in life than helping 
somebody else. And when mm-hmm. I read that, I was like, well, I got to know this about him. You yeah. know, I, I don't need to just know the all the environmental and oil and gas stuff. I need to know this too. So that's that's wonderful. I hope I hope uh, through this someone decides to help. You yeah. know, because I don't think people. You know, sex trafficking is 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 a giant, giant problem in the world. It is a huge industry. I saw the, I saw the numbers on it. You know, how you, an economic value of it, and it yeah. was bigger than an industry. And I can't remember what it was. It's it was, bigger than most. Actually, you can yeah. add up. I think you know Apple and and Microsoft, and like it's bigger than all of them. It's so, bigger than all of them put together. Yeah, and, yeah. and I was just my god. You know, my god. It's it, uh, the only thing I think above it in in the crime world uh, is is drugs. Which yeah. is catching up, yeah. But it's the same people behind it all. It's yeah. the same traffickers who are making the money off of it. But they well, deal in human beings. It's it's horrific, you know. Well, you know, I wish you uh, success in that, and um, and I also wish you more success in in your uh, work in creating a better world and yeah. helping the environment and growing, uh, in, you know, making environmentally friendly energy available to the to the world. So, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for sharing and. Um, Have a great day, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.